back to Cinema Wellman. I am your host, David. And uh, and today I'm feeling pretty good about a format change that we recently made. Uh, a couple of months ago, we switched from our monthly screening episodes, our rundowns from a top 10, bottom five to a best worst for a variety of reasons. The main one being that I'm working again, no longer able to screen 75 or 80 movies a month, which is what I was doing. Um, Fewer screenings translate into fewer quality films to recognize and tell you about. Um, But it doesn't seem to affect the number of bombs, though. Uh, I think I'll always have a full complement of those to watch each and every month. And this month is no exception. We did screen just over 50 films this month. And a vast majority of them were summed up in a word, meh. Now, possibly because I continue to roll through older movies that were Oscar-nominated but otherwise forgettable for various reasons, and most of them were uh, the nomination of Best Original Song, which continues to haunt me. Um, But we're never really here to talk about meh movies, so let's get to those best and worst lists. We have uh, five really bad ones and five really good ones for you to possibly check out. Um, we're going to start where we always do, and that's at the bottom, and add quite a bottom. Uh, I actually want to start off and mention uh, four movies that didn't make the worst list this month. Uh, if I had included uh, all four, then this month would have been uneven, and we can't have that. So here's a glimpse into what actually got cut from the worst list. Uh a film called Whoopee, in, with complete with an exclamation point. Uh, it's a racially insensitive movie from 1930, and it failed to make this worst list, even though it featured awful jokes, bad songs, blackface, and just about every other racial stereotype that you can think of. Um, I've talked about an awful lot of these types of films in the bottom and worst category lately, and I thought I'd take a month off. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to find something similar very soon. Um, In Fabric uh, from 2018 also didn't make the worst list, even though it was about a killer dress. Yeah, it's as bad as it sounds. Um, I also did include Atlantis, The Lost Continent from 1961, a laughably bad film uh, due mostly to the horrible effects used in it. The villain at one point uses a laser that makes him seem like Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He's just like blowing stuff up all over the place with this laser. Things are exploding. People are melting and all this stuff. When he gets shot with his own laser device, um, he gets turned into a skeleton. A medical skeleton. You could actually see the little hook, the little metal hook that keeps the top of the skull attached um, for a medical skeleton. I loved that. That was fantastic. But the movie was absolutely terrible. That was the best part. They used the cameo of the medical skeleton while every other character hit by this laser uh, like disappeared, melted. Uh, also not making the list, the caddy also excluded, even though it starred Jerry Lewis at his worst. Um, after those four certified bombs, you might find yourself wondering what could possibly be worse. 
What did make the worst list? Well, buckle up because here we go. We're going to start with, from 2002, a movie titled Air Panic. Now, I'm going to start with this movie, and, and Air Panic was at least entertaining. Uh, I was reminded reminded of our Which Was Worse uh, episodes, and um, since Air Panic is definitely in that realm. This was bad fun, though, and I knew exactly what it was from the start, so it was kind of fun bad. Bad fun, fun bad, same thing. Uh, Air Panic was a birthday gift from uh, my new work friends, and it was chosen in the hope that it would be bad entertainment, and it did not disappoint. This movie starts with a passenger airliner crashing into downtown Denver and and destroying the entire city. I'm not sure how big that airplane was. I've been to Denver. Uh, Hannah lives in Denver. Hannah and Quinn live in Denver right now. It's it's kind of a, it's a big city. I don't know how one airplane, but it destroyed the whole city. Uh, and it ends with trouble at the airport in Baltimore. Uh, so the cities that they chose to mess with certainly got my attention. The bad guy in this is the stereotypical evil genius. He has a cut-rate Phantom of the Opera disfigurement, and he has a beef with the airline that's featured in the movie. He has somehow figured out a way to control passenger airliners in flight with a joystick. Um, Back in the day when my parents got their first personal computer in the house, there was a game that we all played, and Hannah and Dakota can back me up on this, and it, it was a motorcycle racing game, and I think it was called Red Line Racer, I'm not positive, but it was a joystick, and you drove the motorcycle that way. Well, in Air Panic, the bad evil genius villain, he controls passenger airliners mid-flight with a, you know, red line racer joystick. Um, He can also see and hear everything that's going on on the plane. Um, And at one point, someone on board calls him a lunatic. And uh, they show the guy move the joystick and the plane goes into a straight down free fall. Now, all of the effects were pretty dismal in this film. Just terrible. But my favorite um, was the effect they used. Um, There was a plane landing on a runway, and there was another plane taking off on that same runway at the very same time. They actually almost touched. Um, I'm no aviation expert, but I think wind shear would have destroyed both of those planes in pretty quick fashion. The, The landing gear almost touches the other plane, Absolutely, and brutal looking. It doesn't even look real at all. Second favorite horrible effect in this would have to be when the emergency door was open mid-flight. And isn't it scary that, that that's been happening lately? Yeah, I, I don't want to fly at all anymore. Uh, so in this film, uh, emergency doors open mid-flight and a passenger and a flight attendant are hanging onto the outside of this jetliner. Because the door is now open. The plane's in mid-flight. And bo- one's hanging out. I believe the the, the male passenger is, is hanging onto the plane. And the female flight attendant is hanging onto his legs. And um, they're on the outside of the plane as it's flying. 
and they're not Tom Cruise. Um, the uh, I, I could not believe that I'm looking at this, and and they actually climb back into the plane and close the door. As CinemaSins would say, they survived this. <laughs> Air Panic was made around the time of 9-11. So the DVD case carries a disclaimer warning that the images in this film could be disturbing to some viewers. I think the case should have warned that everyone who watches this movie will be disturbed, but it will have nothing to do with 9-11. Next on the worst list, we have a tie from 1984, Songwriter, and from 1982, Yes, Giorgio. Um... And I'm going to make a statement about both of these movies to start off. Here it is. Willie Nelson's acting is actually the best part of these two movies. Just think about that for a second. I lump both of these movies together because they're kind of the same film on the surface. Films about singers that cast singers who can sing but not act. Willie Nelson plays Doc Jenkins in Songwriter. Doc is fed up with the music industry and wants to get back at the agent who ripped him off. Helping him out is Blackie Buck, played by another singer turned actor, Chris Christopherson. Uh, Christopherson once earned an and introducing credit for the film Cisco Pike. Uh, he might be mentioned in a future episode of that series. Um, in Yes, Giorgio, we have opera great Luciano Pavarotti playing opera singer, Giorgio Fini, and I think Fini means the end in Italian, and, and it should have ended a lot sooner than this. Um, the Giorgio, the character, loses his voice, and uh, Catherine Harold, the actress, plays his throat specialist, and Giorgio falls in love with her. Does that sound like an interesting movie to you? Oh my goodness, this was so boring. Um, Pavarotti's acting ability is hard to describe. Since he's an opera singer who isn't convincing at all playing an opera singer. I'm all for, I've said this before, I'm all for casting athletes as athletes and singers as singers, as long as they can also act a little. Kevin Garnett and Uncut Gems. Um, that should be a prerequisite, and I guess it's not, because we see it all the time and it's terrible. Um, the only thing I was rooting for with both of these movies was for them to end. And neither ended soon enough for me. Next on the worst list is Paradox from 2018. If you think that last one sounded bad, listen to this. Actress Daryl Hannah directs rock star boyfriend Neil Young in this unwatchable experiment of a film. Uh, this looks like a well-funded student film that doesn't know which genre it wants to be when it grows up. Pick a lane. Um, were there two were there two seater outhouses back in the day when people were using outhouses? Was that a thing? I should research that. I ask this because there's not one, there's not two, but there are three scenes featuring conversations between two filthy cowboys sitting next to each other uh, in a two seater. Uh, and take my word for it, the conversations were not interesting at all. This entire thing. Uh, looks like a movie a guy's girlfriend made after someone handed her a lot of money. Next on the worst list is from 1973, and this was an abomination, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. This is pretentious gullshit. Uh, some of the scenery is pretty, but when Jonathan, 
the seagull, starts whispering 12 minutes into this movie with gems like, Why can't I fly? Why are the other gulls flying? This thing goes down like someone fed it a lit firecracker. I remember this being a big deal when the book came out. I never read the bu- this book on which it was based, and it has to be more. It has to be better than this nonsense. This this film was ridiculous. There were points during this screening that I actually couldn't believe what I was hearing. The dialogue is so insipid. Um, again, seagulls, but you know what? You can. You can go on the interwebs and look at movies of seagulls, and you can go to an actual beach. And guess what? The place is crawling with them. Um, I was wondering why this was a movie in the first place. I was yelling at this film to just end and put me out of my misery, but Jonathan droned on and on for the full 99 minutes. He is the most boring seagull in the history of seagulls. I hated this movie so much. Uh, that I thought it was a lock to be deemed the worst. I knew it would end up on the list, but I was like, this is a solid lock at number one, the worst movie screened here at Cinema Wellman in May. That's before I watched this next mess on the final day of the month. And that is the worst film that we screened here at Cinema Wellman during May. And it's from 1974, and it's titled Shanks. What an unpleasant surprise this was. I was not expecting to have to do a rewrite for the worst list on May 31st, and yet, here we are. French mime, and I'm sure I could stop right there and you could figure out why this was so terrible, but French mime, Marcel Marceau, plays Malcolm Shanks. Let's go to IMDb. A mute puppeteer uses a deceased scientist's invention to control dead bodies like puppets. And it's actually a lot worse than it sounds. Marceau may be able to mime his way out of an invisible box, but he can't act his way out of a wet paper sack. Worse yet, he plays two roles in this movie. The only reason this was watched was, of course, because of an Oscar nomination. And this one was for not original song, which I was totally expecting, but for best music. Now, the sad thing about this is that the music was actually quite good. And it probably really deserved that nomination. That nomination was well earned. But it's funny to think about the fact that anything in a in a film this bad could be Good. Um, That might be an interesting idea for a future episode right there. Uh, I was hoping, while I was watching Shanks, that one of the puppets was a prison inmate and shanked Shanks with a homemade shank. Um, Unfortunately, that did not happen. So enough of that badness. Let's get that out of our our minds and our thoughts, and let's head on to the best of May. We're going to start with a documentary from 1983, And it is titled Seeing Red. This documentary was fascinating to me. Uh, It looks at the political activities of the American Communist Party during the early to mid-20th century. Um, You may remember me mentioning on an earlier episode that I had to agree in writing not to teach the communist doctrine in my classroom as a rookie teacher 
uh, in Hudson, New Hampshire back in 1988. Uh, I lived through a good portion of the Cold War, and I'm quite familiar with communism and communists. I also have never met a member of the Communist Party, American or otherwise. And this documentary features interviews with actual members of the American Communist Party who talk about their beliefs in an intelligent and compassionate way. They also talk about how things went earlier in their lives as a member of the Communist Party here in the United States. Um, The things that they were hoping to achieve didn't sound evil to me at all. Uh, listening with my 2023 ears. It actually sounded better than the system we're currently working with in many ways, in my opinion. Um, to hear propaganda films using words like, quote, lying, dirty, shrewd, godless, and murderous, end quote, to describe American communists reminds me of how, mm, I don't know, sees described their enemies in the 30s and the 40s. Um, I'm not saying I'd like to see America adopt communism. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that this film was an eye-opener and another reminder that Americans at heart are afraid pretty much of everything that's not 100% American in their minds. And there's some nasty business at the heart of this. Uh, Americans being ugly towards other Americans, which is something that we are unfortunately used to. Next, from 1981, is another documentary. And this is... Brooklyn Bridge. Full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of Ken Burns documentaries. I love the Civil War, baseball, the war, which was about World War II, uh, the national parks, and Prohibition. Prohibition was just, could be my favorite. In 2012, I saw that he did a documentary uh, that was titled The Dust Bowl. When I heard this, I was dumbfounded. I was thinking, things. Like, how could that be possibly interesting to anyone in any way? Why would he lend his amazing talents to chronicle a dust storm? Well, I'm here to tell you that the Dust Bowl is amazing. And it's as interesting as any of his other documentaries. I think he could make a documentary about, you know, think of something, you know, just like, um, oh, maybe the, okay, the history of, of, oh, sorry about that. I dropped my phone. The History of Cloth Napkins, a Ken Burns documentary. I'd be like, there's probably some stuff about cloth napkins that I don't know. And Ken's going to tell me. Um, this film, Brooklyn Bridge, was made before any of those other documentaries that Burns made. He made this one before all of that. Um, and watching it was a preview to the genius that I would enjoy for now 42 years. Um, the documentary was packed with information. Uh, using that now famous first-person accounts that Burns' docs are known for. Uh, and it's all about one of the most iconic bridges in the United States, or possibly the world. Um, did you know that the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge began in 1869? For those of you keeping score at home, it's just five years after the end of the Civil War. It was the first suspension bridge to use steel for its cables. It was the first bridge to use uh explosives in a dangerous underwater device called a caisson. Um, And at the time it was built, it was the longest, longest suspension bridge in the world. If you're interested in New York City history, bridges, architecture, Ken Burns documentaries, uh, this is a must-see. Amazing facts and amazing footage. 
Next on the best list is from 1949, and it's titled The File on Thelma Jordan. The trailer for this film, and trailers were extremely different back then than they are today, features, a lot of them featured writing that came right out and like, you know, coming soon, you know, Alfred Hitchcock or whatever. Um, And it features these large print headlines on the screen. And in this film, The File on Thelma Jordan, this is what the screen reads. Quote, when a woman like Thelma Jordan goes wrong, she goes all the way. Exclamation part, point, end quote. Um, from IMDb, and this is awesome as they usually do, Assistant District Attorney Cleve Marshall, no one's named Cleve anymore, uh, falls for the mysterious Thelma Jordan when she seeks help solving the robberies of her aunt's estate. This movie is an under-the-radar film, uh, film noir, starring friend, great friend of Cinema Wellman Barbara Stanwyck in the title role. The great character actor Wendell Corey plays the sap DA who Thelma has wrapped around her conniving little fingers. Uh, Robert Siodmak directed and the in, in, incomparable Edith Head, eight-time Oscar winner Edith Head was the costumer on this film. I actually decided to DVR it and watch this from uh, TCM based on Stanwyck, Siodmak, and Edith Head alone. You can't go wrong there with that trio. This is an excellent example of film noir. So if you're a fan, uh, seek out Thelma. But be careful. She is not to be trifled with. Next on the best list for screenings in May is from 1984. And it is titled Beat Street. Um, I'm always looking for suggestions of movies to watch uh, that aren't Oscar-nominated. I'm going to get to those eventually. Or current films that are making the rounds right now. Um, my new job lends itself to a lot of chatter during the day with 10 of us in one big room. Uh, and many times the chatter is movie chatter. Beat Street was recommended to me by one of my new work friends who grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He told me that this film was an accurate portrayal of what things were like growing up in an urban setting, especially when it comes to music, dancing, fashion, etc. Since movies are always a reflection of their time, and I was told that this was an accurate reflection, I was all in. Here's IMDb. Quote, An aspiring DJ from the South Bronx and his best friend, a promoter, try to get into show business by exposing people to hip-hop music and culture. Um, most of the dancing in the film is breakdancing, which I haven't seen for quite a while. It's great fun watching the breakdancers in this movie uh, do their stuff on that little piece of cardboard that's right on the street, um, performing in front of small crowds and, you know, pretty good-sized crowds. Amazing athletic ability is needed to dance like that. And they spin around, end up on their heads. Uh, quite athletic and fun to watch. Um, the film solidifies its authenticity by casting actual young people who were breakdancers or involved in the hip-hop world at the time, um, and not stars in, in either realm. Uh, because of this, the acting isn't stellar, but it's absolutely real. It's authentic. Um, and the fact that they also perform the dancing and the music without the then need for an obvious body double to do the the dancing and 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 things like that. It makes this entertaining from start to finish. So a big thank you to Mike for the suggestion. He is now one for one in movie recommendations. Uh, 
And just this week, he gave me a list of others to watch, and I'm already sorting out where to find them. So a big thanks. Um, and the best movie, we've only got one left. The best movie screened here at Cinema Wellman in the merry month of May was from 1993, and it is titled Matinee. Um, the most surprising thing about this comedy slash love letter to sci-fi movies in the early 60s is that I had never seen it. Joe Dante directed it. I had seen seven of his movies before this one and liked a good amount of them, so that's a positive. Matinee stars John Goodman. I like John Goodman. I was never a big fan of Roseanne, but I liked him in other projects, especially the Coen Brothers, The Big Lebowski, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So that's another positive. In this film, Goodman plays a small-time movie producer who brings his sci-fi film, Mant, to Key West, Florida, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Check, check, check. These are all positive. So how did I miss this? I honestly have no idea, but I'm glad that I finally caught it. In an odd twist, Goodman plays uh, a man whose name is not the same, but his, his character is based on the real-life director, William Castle. And William Castle directed the worst film Screened here in May. Shanks. You can't make that up. The best movie of the month, John Goodman is portraying a guy who's kind of supposed to be William Castle, the director of Shanks. I mean, like I said, you can't make that up. Now, Castle was famous for these in-theater stunts that made film the film-going experience totally immersive. For one of his movies, The Tingler, he had the theater seats wired with electricity, and actually shocked patrons during pivotal parts of the movie. This is just one of the many castle facts incorporated in this extremely fun trip in the time machine back to the early 60s. The film within the film, Mant, looks hysterical as well. Too bad that was never made. Um, Well, that's it. That's a wrap for Cinema Woman's Best and Worst Screenings in May. Uh, Lots to avoid and some to check out. Join us next week for an episode that's yet to be decided. Uh, There's a future episode coming up mm, this month that's going to require a lot of re-screenings. And that might take a couple of weeks. So I'm thinking that it might be time for which was worse for movies to be decided. Tune in and you can see it. Um, and those are always great fun. And I've heard from people that, that watch or listen or read that those are enjoyable. So, um, I think that might be coming next. So I hope you'll come back for that. And until then, take care.